Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about finding normal again. We boldly flush out the cause of a TP shortage. We review a new work by Thomas Cole. We report on the passing of John Prine. We catch up with Rick Antonson in a new conversation about the life of a travel writer who can't travel. And we suggest ways that you can look good on camera. The Old Dog's conversation is with Mel Foster, a multi-talented ad man, writer, producer, and now creator of A Nifty Way to Preserve Your Memories. Stay with us. So, Paul. Yeah. What's on your mind today? What I've been thinking about, Jim, is what is getting back to normal going to look like when this whole coronavirus episode is over? Oh, yeah. Any thoughts? Well, um, one of the things that I think is kind of encouraging is I think people are going to be a little bit kinder to each other. I see a lot of that happening, a lot more respect, and maybe along with that, maybe a little bit more acceptance of people who aren't like us, because we have all experienced the same phenomenon, and so that's sort of a great equalizer for us. Who aren't like us? You mean white old farts? Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people who aren't like that. I mean, like people from different countries, different uh, backgrounds, yes. different history, different cultures and all of that. But we've all shared the same disease. And I agree. This really seems to be a period of time when people have opened their hearts, when they have been acknowledging uh, the debt that they have to other people, like health professionals. Yeah. And and finding ways of expressing that, given the limitations of physical contact. Uh, unfortunately, we will probably be in the midst of an election and all of that may go out the window. I hope not. I also hope that this has been an eye opener for us in terms of being lax. Uh, number one, about our supply chain for medical supplies. My goodness, we need to be able to produce more of that domestically. And also, do we need that much toilet paper on the <laughs> shelf? Yeah. I wanted to ask you if there was anything that you have personally discovered about yourself that you did not know before that you want to carry forward after this is over. Hmm. I know that I have... Uh, consciously made more contact with my family. That was something that I may have been lax about or taken for granted. What have I discovered about myself? Hey, I don't like to shave. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I probably care even less about my appearance than I used to. As you know, I'm a very casual person, Jim. How about yourself? Well, one thing that kind of surprised me is at the time that uh, this outbreak uh, first became apparent, uh, we were in the middle of a lot of um, backyard renovation. And gradually, my wife and I got to the point where we said, you know what, we could probably do this ourselves. Now, this involved a lot of heavy digging, a lot of landscaping that I just didn't think I could do. Well, we've done it all. 
uh, the backyard looks beautiful. Uh, we've done a lot of landscaping and, uh, and I feel much better for it. And that is one thing that I'm going to carry forward for at least a week or two after this is over. I, on the other hand, I'm pretty much letting the weeds grow now. So I, I feel live and let live. Those weeds deserve to have a full life, too. <laughs> One of the stranger side effects of the pandemic is the shortage of toilet paper in grocery stores. So what's the cause of this wipeout? This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for April 7th, 2020. The problem appears to be global. In Australia, a cafe is accepting toilet paper as payment. Now, if you're curious, a cup of coffee costs three rolls. In Hong Kong, armed robbers held up a supermarket, and all they took was 600 rolls of the best TP. An official with the Food Industry Association suggests it's a three-part problem. One part is simply hoarding. In times of crisis, like a hurricane, customers regularly clean out the toilet paper shelves. The system can quickly rebound by shifting supply from other parts of the country. Uh, when the demand is nationwide, the shortage can be long-lasting. Another part of the problem is that workers and students are at home. There's a greater need for the home version of toilet paper. Home TP is softer, packaged in smaller rolls, and distributed by different companies than the jumbo rolls used in offices and schools. The last part of the problem is that the industry has to produce more product for the home. This means added hours at the factory and shifting the industrial version to home use. This adjustment takes time with a reduced workforce due to the virus. However, there is another option. We could revert to newspapers, oh. magazines, or books for RTP. Some of us are old enough to remember that the final destination of the Sears catalog was the outhouse. The added benefit is that you have something to read while you wait. Are you one of those people that remembers the Sears catalog in the outhouse, Paul? Well, I had I had relatives, farmers. <laughs> yeah. That was it. They never bought toilet paper. That's right. And it was usually the Sears catalog because it would last a few months. <laughs> <laughs> After you've skimmed the gold from your television offerings and reordered your sock drawer, you might consider a return to reading as you wait for the declining curve of the pandemic. Acknowledging that possibility, we offer up a review of a book that speaks to our generation. The author is Thomas R. Cole, who previously edited the Oxford Book of Aging, an anthology of poems and prose related to aging. He is a man with a long-time interest in the stories of older people. His current effort is called Old Man Country, My Search for Meaning Among the Elders. The book is a series of interviews with a dozen men who were in their 80s and 90s at the time they were interviewed. These are men of accomplishment, ranging from Dr. Denton Cooley to television broadcaster Hugh Downs. Their musings are philosophical, sometimes wistful, with an awareness that they're near the end of their lives. The interviews are organized around the answers to four questions. Am I still a man? Do I still matter? What is the meaning of my life? And am I still loved? Along the way, the author includes biographical information on his subjects and himself that offers shading to their stories. It's an easy read since each chapter is a different interview. You can read an interview, set it down, and return at a later time without losing the thread. In fact, I found in reading the book that allowing a little time to digest each chapter was a good way to approach the material. It is perhaps a drawback that the subjects are all men. 
As a result, the book may be less interesting to women, or maybe it might have the fascination of studying a tribe of primitive people to the women in our audience. The author is aware of his blind spot, and he promises a similar book featuring interviews with women in the future. Here's something we did not want to hear. John Prine has died from the complications of the coronavirus at 74. And he will be missed during these troubling times. The New York Times for April 8, 2020, published an article listing a few of his essential songs and some background on his life. For me, John Prine captured the spirit of the 70s. He was rebellious and socially conscious with a wacky sense of humor. His stage presence was laid back and joking that often veiled the brilliance of his music and lyrics. His singing voice was just okay, but it was just right for his music. In some ways, he was the Woody Guthrie of our generation, calling attention to the folks that seemed to miss out on any good luck. If you're not familiar with his music, we suggest the following. Angel from Montgomery, a sad look back at a bad marriage. Sam Stone, a sympathetic ode to the returning Vietnam vet. Illegal Smile, a celebration of the healing virtues of marijuana. Hello in there. An explanation of the loneliness of old age. And then the laugh-out-loud humor of Let's Talk Dirty in Hawaiian. <laughs> Listen to these songs, and you'll become a fan of this unique talent. I wish we could have had his musical take on how the coronavirus has changed our daily life. However, we can imagine how he would have written his obituary. John Prine has reached his expiration date. It's still safe to consume his music, but there may be an occasional bitter aftertaste. We interviewed Rick Antonson in episode 30. We've got an update from Rick now on what's happening to him now that the travel writer cannot travel. You know, I, I treat writing as my career, and I'm at my desk at 7.30 in the morning. I think it was Stephen King who said, if you're a writer, it's a job. Go to the desk, sit down, start writing. So I, I treat it that way. And I probably put in about 40 hours a week. So in that way, I've always been in the last half dozen years, somewhat confined to space. I also speak at conferences. I talk about something called cathedral thinking, which is a long-term view of either businesses or fields of endeavor. So I've talked about it, say, to the World Cocoa Foundation in Berlin or to the uh, meeting planners organization in Basel, Switzerland. So I've done a lot of that. I had uh, a half a dozen speaking engagements on the horizon. And so all of those are now either postponed or some of them have become virtual conferences. And those are big shifts that may continue for the coming years as people get used to them. Smaller bookstores, are the, they're the backbone of real writer experiences, the chance for an author to interact with readers in a way where you want to shake their hands or have them give you a hug if they've enjoyed what you've written about or, or to hear their experiences firsthand. The smaller the bookstore, the more likely it is not to have other sources of revenue separate from in bookstore sales. And if they disappear, what a heartbreak, not just for writers, but for readers and, and browsers. And, and people just like to hang out in an atmosphere that has all these spines and front covers that say, hey, pick me up, read me, spend some time with me. Let's travel together. What I would say to people in the travel business is, regardless of what they've done 
in the past and their successes, whether they had record sales or they had hosted Olympics or they were at the forefront of adventure travel, whatever good things they accomplished before, the people on the front lines of tourism, when they go back to work, their most important work is ahead of them. You may not care, but here's a few simple pointers to look better on camera. The suggestions are from the New York Times for April 7th, 2020. You know, I found it rather refreshing to see all these TV personalities looking less than fresh scrubbed and put together as they video conference in from home. But Maureen Dowd with the New York Times offered a few tips on how to up your game on camera. I know most of us are not celebrities with a national following, but these tips may be helpful when Skyping the grandkids. Uh, Maybe. I thought you were a national celebrity. No. Local. On my block, actually. All right. Well, what's tip number one? Are you done commenting? I'm done. Tip number one. Put your computer on a stack of books so the camera is just above your head, then tilt it down. Tip number two. Set a tall lamp next to your computer so that your good side is well lit. The lamp should be slightly behind the computer and to one side. Tip number three. Put a piece of white paper on your desk between you and your keyboard. The light from the lamp will bounce off the paper and fill in the dark side of your face. And finally, tip number four. Powder your face for a consistent look to your skin. Okay, maybe we'll leave this step optional. Women will be skilled at this, but men (laughs) could hurt themselves. If nothing else, playing with camera angle and lighting will give you something to experiment with as you perfect your home studio technique. Paul, I like your approach to camera. You're you're totally lit from behind. <laughs> <laughs> like so many other old dogs we know, Mel Foster has had several careers. Adman, audiobook narrator, and now chronicler of the lives of other old dogs. Mel reflects on his successes in life and his current mission to get people to open up before it's too late. I graduated from the University of Michigan with a master's degree in theater. And uh, as my father used to tell me back in those days, that and 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee. I was too afraid to go to New York and give it a try. I I don't regret that, but I had a good friend who um, was in the master's program with me, and he didn't know what to do either. So he got a job at a small agency called Impact Promotions. And a lot of my life seems to be a friend does something and I go, well, that sounds good. I guess I'll try that. So I went to a bunch of ad agencies, interviewed and and ultimately got a job at one of them. And that was a 30 year career. Ultimately ending with me as a executive vice president, executive creative director at J Walter Thompson. And, um, a lot of a lot of very exciting times. The ad business for people that w- watch Mad Men uh, used to be more. How can I say prestigious? What's your comment on changes in the ad business? Um, when I started in the ad business, the creative director and the executive producer used to go to lunch at a restaurant next door to the agency called Little Harry's. And they had the 
stereotypical three-hour lunch with five martinis. The creative director had a couch in his office. They came back at about 2.30, and he was asleep on that couch at 3 o'clock. By the time I was uh, well into it at J. Walter Thompson, it was all about budgets and deadlines, and you've got to cut staff, and you've got to have you know, more work out of fewer people. And it, it the, all the glamour and glitz had gone from it for a, at least 10 years, of my last 10 years there. And when did you finally leave that business? I left J. Walter Thompson in 2001. And uh, whenever you present a television commercial to a client in its unfinished form, you still need to show uh, the pictures, whether it's a, an, an, an animatic or a storyboard or even the edited commercial, but just not completely finished. And you need a music, play some music with it, and you need a, an announcer. And I was called upon to go into the recording booth and be the voice for those commercials to show to the client. But I thought, boy, this is a neat thing. I, I do these scratch tracks. Clients, like a few clients, said, why the heck don't we just use this guy? So I thought, well, maybe I can do a, a career in, in voice work. And I um, started out by trying to get commercial work in town, uh, which is very competitive, and decided instead to pursue something even more competitive, which was to be a narrator for audiobooks. And um, that turned out to be a second career for probably 15 to 20 years almost. Well, tell us about that. What made doing audiobooks for you a second career? I did something I, I had never done before, which was research the industry. I didn't have a friend who went into the business first so I could follow his footsteps. I just I researched everything I could about it, and I found out that there was a meeting in New York of all the audiobook producers, and at that time they held auditions and you could go there and think you had something like two minutes, maybe three minutes to stand in front of them and do parts of different books to show your range of reading ability. And I went there and read my heart out and got nothing, got zero, absolutely <laughs> zero work out of that. And a year later, I went back and did it again. And lo and behold, there was one producer. By the both times that I went there, there were about 50 people. And I would say there were, say, 35 from Los Angeles and 14 from New York and me from Detroit. <laughs> um, it was, it was a little daunting to be there. But the second time I went, there was a, a producer from Michigan, uh, from a business I'd never heard of called Brilliance Audio, which is in the west side of Michigan in a small town called Grand Haven. But it turns out that they produce, um, that they were the largest independent producer of audiobooks. 
and I did get work starting uh, after that second audition. Mel, what are some of your favorite books, books that maybe our listeners might be familiar with? I'd have to say my all-time favorite book to record was Walden by Thoreau. Um, but more so than titles, uh, authors that I've recorded, um, Dean Kuntz, Danielle Steele, Philip Roth, Philip K. Dick. Uh, it's a long list, and, and it's really been an honor to record them. You know, I can't help but uh, notice that a lot of what you say about your uh, audiobook recording experiences in the past tense. Did something happen to make you stop? I feel that I have gotten a little too old for audiobooks and um it has prompted me to pursue yet probably my third career uh yeah we were talking about that a little bit tell us about your uh, third career my third career i actually formed a company called your video memoir there's a story in my family, I, I, let me share this one, that we found out by talking to an uncle one day. Um, when my grandparents came over from the old country, the family name was Flasterstein. And I had, uh, there was my father and he had two brothers. And the two brothers opened a small market in uh, Detroit called Flasterstein Spying Foods. And they had the store for a couple of years and decided they wanted a neon sign because that was the new jazzy thing to do. So they called the neon sign salesman who came over and said, be happy to sell you a neon sign. Just one thing you should know, we sell them by the letter. <laughs> and so Flasterstein Spying Foods became Foster, B-R-O-S-M-K-T, Foster <laughs> Brothers Market. <laughs> and and that's how my, my name is Foster. And, and uh, my father, who was not part of that, also changed his name to Foster. So how did that morph into your current career as a video memographer? When my cousins and I heard that story, we were actually recording my uncle who was pretty aged at that time. And the idea to me was like, my God, every family has stories like this, that if they're not captured, they're going to be lost. And a lot of people say, yeah, one day I'm going to sit down and write my memoirs. And reality is that they're just not going to do that. And the idea is you sit down for three and a half hours there's a video camera and there's me asking you questions. And the thought was, could, could you get a really good story and get people to reveal things they might not otherwise reveal and edit it down to say a 40 or 45 minute video that really is a, a good summation of a person's life and their beliefs and, you know, their feelings, for their family. And it worked. Do you also use, like, pictures from their past? First of all, the person is looking at me and talking to me the whole time. And uh, we usually have two cameras. And we edit me out. So there's none of me. You'll never hear my voice. You'll never see my face. What we do is it's all the person talking 
we do indeed cut the B-roll. Uh, the more pictures they can give us, the better. So when he talks about Crazy Uncle Louie, we have a picture of Crazy Uncle Louie. And um, we also will Google like crazy. We just did a memoir of a Vietnam vet who had an incredible story. And through Google images and videos, we found, you know, the, the helicopters that were used. He spoke of um, indigenous people in Vietnam called the Montagnards. We found all kinds of photos of them. So we're able to uh, not only use their family photos, but historical photos from the era they talk about. But everybody does have these stories. And once you get them talking, it really is wonderful to get the stories out of them. If you're interested in getting your memories on video, visit www.yourvideomemoir.com. That's yourvideomemoir.com. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon. <laughs>